0: I think when I begin to question all the world around me, there is nothing quite like the certainty of the promises of God's word. Amen. It brings us back. It centers us. It reminds us of what the true truth really is. Now, the most common attribute of Christians around the world is prayer from the days immediately following the death of Jesus until this very day, Christians pray. It's not really surprising, is it? Jesus himself modeled and taught the precious intimacy that we may have with God himself in prayer. Time and again, As he and his disciples faced challenge, the need for and the presence of prayer marked the events of Jesus' early ministry. Following his return to life after the crucifixion and after his subsequent return to the Father, the disciples and followers of Jesus, both out of fear for their lives and apprehension for the future, what's coming next? met in secret locations to pray for the promised presence of the Spirit of God. And when it came as a mighty rushing wind, they were emboldened and strengthened to proclaim the great good news of the life, death, and resurrection of the Creator of all things, who had become a human being, the Son of Man, and through that, sacrifice our creator also became our savior by his death on the cross so with death defying confidence the followers of jesus publicly told and retold the stories and events of his life they recounted his love for god and his love for people sounds like a familiar theme doesn't it And the people, hundreds and thousands of them, responded to the good news of the God who had come to earth for the single purpose of finding and saving them, his lost sheep, from the very circumstances that had separated them from him in the first place. So, not surprisingly, praying, became a hallmark of Christian faith, of Christian witness, of Christian endeavor. When we get together, we pray. When we plan a project, we pray. When we hear there's trouble in the family, we pray. But as you and I know only too well, our prayers are not frequently met with the howling wind presence of God's Spirit, if ever. Faced with the certainty of Jesus' statement that his followers would have trouble in this world, we pray, and we do have trouble in this world. We pray for dramatic intervention. We pray for miracles of God's presence and power. And nothing seems to happen so much of the time. We pray for helicopter rescues that don't seem to come. My dear sister-in-law, Terry, is an avid reader, as am I. And uh, one of the Christian authors that she read recently compared miraculous interventions and dramatic interventions by prayer as helicopter rescues. And I, I thought, you know, that's really not... A bad analogy. I mean, you know what I mean by helicopter rescues, don't you? In this age of uh, video clips from every aspect of both human and animal life, who hasn't seen images of dramatic rescues from fires and floodwaters with helicopters virtually lifting people out of danger? I mean, really, if you haven't seen those kinds of things, Really, all you need to go to is YouTube.com, put in helicopter rescues, and you can see lots of them. And, and as it turns out, it's really a pretty good analogy for the kind of prayer response that we most often look for when we bring our burdens and our needs and our wants to God in prayer. I mean, let's, let's be honest. Uh, we would love to offer up our prayer and Have God see it our way and just do it that way right then and there. It doesn't always happen like that. In fact, more often than not, it doesn't happen quite like that. Now, most, if not all of you who are here today know that two of our three children were born with cystic fibrosis. Our daughter, Nicole, uh, passed away from her disease in 1974 when she was five years old. Our other girl you knew very well. Heidi uh, grew up, met the love of her life, raised her children, uh, and worshiped here with you until her passing in 2015 at the age of 42. You know, I have been praying for helicopter rescues for over 50 years. And I imagine that you do the same thing. Praying for divine intervention, though it probably happens more around life and death scenarios, touches on every aspect of our lives. We pray for miracles for relationships, for grades when we're in school, for work or for our businesses. We pray for miracles with regard to our money. Did I really make that stupid investment? Oh, God, you've got to change this. We pray for interventions with our health and the illnesses that we face. We, we pray for interventions politically and because of world conditions, you name it. If it touches our lives in some way, we pray for it. And we pray for the outcomes that we think will best meet our needs and desires. And yet more often than we'd like to admit, our prayers for dramatic intervention, our prayers for that helicopter rescue, are not answered as we had hoped they might be. So what do you do when they're not answered? I know that for some, the lack of the helicopter rescue in prayer Becomes the beginning of the loss of faith and confidence in God. And that's tragic because it doesn't have to be that way. Here's a story from God's Word that makes all the difference when prayers for helicopter rescues are not realized. Let me set the stage with you. You may want to follow along in your Bible or in one of the Pew Bibles. In the days and weeks prior to his death, just outside the walls of Jerusalem, Jesus repeatedly told his disciples that he was going to die. When Jesus asked his followers who they thought he was, Peter was the one who said, Well, you're the Christ. And this meant, I'll give you the text, this meant that Peter believed that Jesus was the Messiah promised and anointed by God. But right after that declaration of Jesus being the Messiah, Mark's gospel records these words in Mark 8, verses 31 and 32, right after the verse right following. Peter says, you're the Christ. Christ acknowledges it. And then it goes on in verse 31 of Mark 8. He, or Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of God, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. He wanted to dispel any notions that they had that the Messiah was anything other than what he was ever intended to be scripturally, prophetically. And so he told them this. And then you find that uh, later he, he, he's telling other stories. Um, he goes on. Uh, in chapter 9 uh, is the transfiguration in Mark's gospel. But interestingly, right after the Transfiguration, down in verses 30 and 31, he comes to this familiar theme. Mark, chapter nine, verses 30 to 31. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. What was he teaching them? He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Peter has said, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And Jesus said, son of man is going to be betrayed. He's going to be killed. And three days later, rise up. Second time. Tells them again. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be killed. And he's going to be raised up. And just in case the disciples, or we have missed it, he repeats it again in chapter 10 of the same gospel. This is Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Now that's an interesting sentence. They were astonished. Something was surprising to them. They were fearful. They were afraid. Why? Because there'd been trouble in Jerusalem before. And now they were going back in. And so again, it says in the scriptures, moving on, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and three days later he will rise. Is there any doubt in anyone's mind here this morning that Jesus knew and taught his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem to die, but that he would be raised again in three days? It's not a mystery, is it? He said it. He said it clearly. He said it three times. I don't see how we could possibly misunderstand his meaning. He knew it. He expected it. He was anticipating it. Okay? He had said in another place that he had come to seek and to save that which was lost. It was a part of the plan. He came to die for the sins of humanity and to save us from being eternally separated from God. So knowing his purpose for coming into the world, would it surprise you this morning to learn that in the final hours before the fulfillment of that purpose, Jesus himself prayed for a helicopter rescue? You may read of it in Mark's gospel in chapter 14 verses 32 and onward. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. MY SOUL IS OVERWHELMED WITH SORROW TO THE POINT OF DEATH, HE SAID TO THEM. STAY HERE AND KEEP WATCH. AND GOING A LITTLE FARTHER, HE FELL TO THE GROUND AND PRAYED THAT IF POSSIBLE, THE HOUR MIGHT PASS FROM HIM. ABBA, FATHER, HE SAID, EVERYTHING IS POSSIBLE FOR YOU. TAKE THIS CUP FROM ME. Now the challenge for you and me is that we are so familiar with the passage that we already know what comes next. We know what Jesus is going to say, but I'm telling you this morning that when we do that, we miss the reality of what Jesus' impending death meant to him. We need to stop and consider the words. Here, just before the execution, he expected in order to fulfill his mission to save us. Jesus opens his heart to his disciples, opens his heart to God, opens his heart to the readers of Mark's Gospel, lays bare his struggles, his agony, and his fears about facing death he turns to God and he pleads, is there a way this cup can be taken from me? Is there any way I can be let off the hook? Is there any way I can get out of this mission? This is astounding. Because up to this point, Jesus has been completely in control. Nothing seems to have surprised him so far in all of his earthly ministry. You think about all of the stories and all of the passages. Nothing surprises him. Nothing catches him off guard. Nothing throws him. But here in this moment, we all of a sudden read that, quote, he began to be deeply distressed, close quotes. I'm telling you that the word translated deeply distressed in the original language means astonished. It's almost too much to comprehend. Astonished. All through Mark's gospel to this point, Jesus has been totally unflappable. But here, suddenly, something he sees something he realizes, something he experiences stuns the eternal Son of God. And he sends up a prayer for a helicopter rescue he wants out. Jesus is also, according to the text, quote, troubled, close quotes. The Greek verb here means to be overcome with horror. Not just a little apprehension, horror. Imagine, if you will, that you're walking down a street and you turn a corner in town and there in front of you is this horrible accident that's taken place in the intersection. And then to your utter astonishment and horror, you realize that the person in the car is someone you know and someone you love. What are you feeling? Nausea, sickness, fearfulness, darkness. Your horror is like a physical cloud rising up to choke you. That emotion is what Jesus is experiencing. He actually says so in the text. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I am so saddened. I think I'm going to die by what I'm seeing. Something has shocked the unshockable son of God. What was it? Well, I'll tell you. He was facing something beyond physical death, something so much worse that the pain of physical sufferings were probably no more than like flea bites in comparison. He was smothered by a mere whiff of what he would go through on the cross. Didn't he know he was gonna die? Absolutely, but this isn't about information. It's not about what he knew, it's what he was feeling. Of course he knew that he was going to die. He had told his disciples so repeatedly, but now he's beginning to taste what he will be experiencing on the cross and he recoils from it, pleading with the Father to take this cup from me. Because in all of his life, both human and prehuman. All that he had ever known was this wonderful dance of love with the Father and the Spirit. And whenever he turned to the Father, the Spirit flooded him with love. And what happened visibly and audibly at his baptism and at his transfiguration also happened invisibly and inaudibly every time he prayed. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he turns to the Father, all he can see before him is the abyss, the chasm, the nothingness that's separ- of separation from the Father and the Spirit for eternity. That's what's in the cup, that's what he sees. That's what he knows he's going to have to drink. From the Bible, we learn that God is the source of all love, of all life, of all light, and of all coherence. He holds us all together. Us, our world, this universe. He holds it all together. It's coherent because of who he is. So when Jesus looked into the depths of that cup, he began to experience the the spiritual, cosmic, infinite disintegration that would happen when he became separated from his Father on the cross. Just the foretaste of that disintegration caused him to stagger and to send up a prayer for rescue. So he's contending with the Father, asking him for a way out, asking for another way to rescue us without having to go personally under the pain of separation and apparent abandonment forever. But instead of taking his circumstances into his own hands, which he could, have we not all read and heard? Had he not said that God had given all things into his hands? Absolutely. So instead of taking his circumstances into his own hands, in the end, he relinquished control over his circumstances and submits his desires to the will of the Father, and he says to God, and aren't you glad we're finally here? Yet not what I will but what you will. He is wrestling, to be sure, but he is also choosing to trust God, even in his deepest despair. Why? Why? Because as horrible as the cup is, eternal separation from the Father and the Spirit, as horrible as the cup is. He knows that his immediate desire to be spared must bow to his ultimate desire to spare us. To spare us. It is an overwhelming thought. In the end, Jesus gives up his plea for a helicopter rescue, choosing instead to cling to the anchor that Mick read about, the anchor of trusting God's promise and love to carry him through to the completion of his mission to save us. It is in this point more than any other when we read that he was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin, that it becomes the most real for me because I am overwhelmed of the kind of love that comes from a celestial as God himself who would knowingly and willingly give up communion with the Father and the Spirit if it could mean saving me and saving you. Amen. So how can we do any less than he did and trust this God that we worship and praise and adore and sing to and pray to and trust in? How can we do any less We have always prayed that God would deliver our children from cystic fibrosis with a direct, with a dramatic, miraculous helicopter rescue. But in the end, in the end, we've also prayed that He would take them into their hands. BECAUSE WE HAVE SEEN THAT EVEN JESUS, WHILE PRAYING FOR A HELICOPTER RESCUE, ULTIMATELY TRUSTS IN GOD'S FAITHFULNESS AND LOVE AND HOLDS ON TO HIM AND REMINDS US THAT NO MATTER HOW BROKEN OUR LIVES MAY HAVE BEEN, HOW TRAGIC THE CIRCUMSTANCES WE MAY HAVE EVER FACED, I'M NOT ALONE IN THIS, NOBODY'S ALONE IN THIS. YOU ALL, WE ALL HAVE EXPERIENCED DEEP SORROWS But to recognize that even in our weakness, we have a voice for the love of God. We have a voice for the faithfulness of God. We have a voice for the fulfillment of all of God's promises because he said so. And even Jesus, as a man, finally bowed his head and decided to trust the Father. That love whose obedience is wide and long and high and deep enough to dissolve the mountains of trials and tribulations we may face throughout our life, that's the love we've all been looking for all of our lives. No family love, no friend love, no mother love, no spousal love, no romantic love, nothing can possibly satisfy us like his love. All those other kinds of love can let you down. They don't always, but they can. But his never will. Never will. Of course, when you think about it cosmically, dear friends, God really did send us a miraculous intervention, didn't he? He sent a helicopter named Jesus. give thanks today for the power and the clarity of your word. You've made it clear that though Jesus knew and understood what it was that he was facing on our behalf, like all of us, when faced with the potential of eternal separation from you, he shrank from it. He didn't want it. But because of his love for us, his desire to save us, his desire to find his lost sheep and bring them home, he was willing to face even that if we could have eternity with you. And so we love him even more. We love him forever. And we love you for loving us so much that you would give your own life to save us. Thank you, Father, for the blessing of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 May God bless you throughout the
1: remainder of your Sabbath day.